You're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to the second season of Commentary Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. I'm Mike. I'm Max. And today we're joined by John Tenuto once again. How's it going, John? Great. Thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, thanks for coming. Now, John, you're, um, in addition to being just a general Trek expert, uh, specifically a Nicholas Meyer expert as well. So um, we thought it would be a good idea to have you on to launch uh, our second series on Nicholas Meyer, this one about uh, his work as a movie director. And uh, today we're going to kind of introduce that uh, series by looking at his memoirs, The View from the Bridge. Now, John, I guess you have a bit of a, a history with with this particular book. Well, um, back at the time the book came out, uh, now it's about four years, five years, um, I was asked by the publisher to uh, take a look at it, or, you know, an early copy of the book, and then kind of do a, a, a Trekkie look at it, you know, what, what to just sort of make suggestions or, or a com- you know, give them a little bit of feedback on how the book would read from uh, from the perspective of a Star Trek fan. So uh, it was really great. Uh, you know, there really weren't any cha- major changes between that edition and the final edition. Um, you know, the edition I got wasn't as the, the you know, it was soft cover and there was no pictures and things like that in there. It was just more of basic um, uh, text in there. And I, you know, the suggestions I made were more, uh, you know, nitpick, uh, you know, uh, spellings of, uh, you know, Star Trek terms and just things like that. Um, and uh, uh, and it was really very much what, what it is in the finished form uh, when I saw the early edition of it. Cool. Well, for those people who don't know, the book is... Uh Meyer's memoirs about his time in the movie industry, focusing primarily, I guess, or, or more intently than than any other thing on his 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 work in in Star Trek. So, John, what what are your thoughts about the book in general? Well, I, I mean, I certainly enjoyed it because it was a chance to hear, you know, um, not so much some explanations, but some context of of who. Nicholas Meyer is as a person, his background, um, you know, there were things, a lot of sort of personal information in there in terms of his family background and, 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 his, and his experiences, the loss of his mother from cancer when he was a teenager, and then again, the loss of his wife uh, later on in his life from, from also from cancer. And, and those types of, um, you know, real sort of human uh, uh, influences and experiences uh, you know, you normally don't get that because uh, with interviews with him, just because people tend to talk about the work only, and um, you know, really, all the interviews are, are that where where you have a lot of commentary from him tend to be on on things like Star Trek. So um, it's more about the process of making the film and not so much the context. And I always think, you know, I kind of believe in the idea that you can figure out who a person is by looking at their work, whether it's a teacher or a artist or a musician or a writer or, you know, a police officer by, by the way they conduct their work, you get clues into 
who they are. So uh, it was en enjoyable to sort of see well, what what suppositions had I been making uh, looking at his films throughout the years as to who he was as a person and then to read some of that in there and see where I was wrong and see where, you know, where I might have guessed right about that. And I generally like just the theme of the book uh, because it's, it's got that, it's still got that idea that I love so much that I spent so much time researching of his about art thriving on limitations and movies thriving on limitations. And that, that is a big part of the book when he, when he talks about the day after and so on, that there's a lot of discussion about uh, limitations that are placed on, on the, the artist by censors and things like that. And, and then the other theme of the book that I like is the idea that this really is the story of, of a person who didn't make it in Hollywood because they had connections. He was a complete outsider. And it's really a good example, you know, if anybody's looking for a role model of somebody who just has, you know, works hard, takes the, says yes to opportunities, um, takes risks, and is able to succeed in their industry, you know, with the help of others, but not because they were someone's son or because someone opened a door for them just because of their name. Well, Max, what about you? It would be easy to spend the entirety talking about how inspiring I think Nicholas Meyer is a person, mm -hmm. as just a guy. I could easily do that. I'm not. I'm trying to not do that. Okay. Well, you know, I. Th this is. We read all of his novels. You know, now with this one, the only book of his that we haven't read is the love story story. Looking at at this as part of his his written word work on the whole, I guess, not novel, but, you know, whatever. Um, I, I th I'm very impressed by it. I think it, it may be his best book. Um, and I thought it was also really interesting how the style of, of writing that he used in his novels uh, translated um, over into his, uh, his nonfiction stuff here. You know, maybe that suggests a certain amount of um, uh, autobiography and things like Confessions of a Homing Pigeon or something like that. I don't know. But... Um, I think that it's 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 interesting the way that uh, especially his his um, you know narration sort of you know his first person narration mirrors uh, that of his characters. Um, but yeah, I found it to be like really inspirational, and I, I found it to be just sort of like an interesting portrait of a of a filmmaker or an artist. You know, and, um, I'm I'm always uh, fascinated by how these things come together and to look at sort of, you know, not just, you know, how one movie came together, but how like a career came together, I, I find to be uh, really interesting. And I, I'm, I, I like the fact that, you know, we've had this sort of background information, which we can use going forward and looking at, you know, all the rest of his movies. But, you know, since we are going to be looking at all of his non-Star Trek movies in this series, I thought today it would make more sense to focus on his Star Trek movies um, and just sort of go through and, and, you know, talk about them in general, but also, you know, what the book uh, discusses in, in particular. So uh, I guess it starts with, with uh, Wrath of Khan. Now, I know, John, you've done a lot of uh, research into the, the making of this movie, right? Um, yeah, that's been my last uh, last four four or five years has been uh, looking at the making of Wrath of Khan and now kind of uh, also sort of prequel looking at the making of Space Seed and how there are some parallels between those two those two from a filmmaking and kind of cultural point of view. In in the book, they say that there were five drafts 
which existed prior to the one that he wrote and that uh, each of those was essentially like a different version starting from scratch by a different writer. And, of course, his draft was, you know, sort of a fusion of, of the elements that, that they liked from those drafts. How, but he, I mean, how much of that is him remembering it that way and, and how much of that is, is accurate? Like, have you read the other drafts? Yeah, yeah the very first um, kind of written storyline or narrative for uh, The Wrath of Khan was by uh, Harv Bennett. It wasn't a script. It was an, an outline called, ironically, uh, The War of the Generations. Uh, so they would use the title Generations later on. But, um, and it was, it was, a, it was a, a, a very broad uh, uh uh, you know, outline. It wasn't uh, fully fleshed out, but the general thrust of the story was that um, there was a rebellion on a planet, and the rebellion was being led by David Marcus, and so Kirk and Carol Marcus um, go to this planet and um, to see what's going on. And it turns out that there's the real power behind everything. The person who's really manipulating everything. Uh, is Khan, and then and there's no Spock in that draft because that was at the time when they really weren't sure about you know what le- what level, if any, uh, participation there would be by by Leonard Nimoy. Um, and then there are other there are other wholly different complete scripts. Um, one is by uh, um, um, Samuel Peoples. There we go. Uh, who wrote you know some of the very uh, you know famous Star Trek episodes. Uh, and wrote the very first, uh, you know, Where No Man Has Gone Before, and, um, uh, you know, sort of first Shatner Star Trek. And uh, that one was completely different. Uh, He went in a totally different direction. There wasn't even a con in there. There were two characters named uh, uh, Sojin and Anis, and and they have, like, mental powers, and um, there's, like, a little Rubik's Cube type of (laughs) robot, almost like... um, a bit from Tron that follows them around, you know, throughout the story, and it's very different. Um, and then there's Jack B. Soward's script, um, which is which has many of the big beats that we that we're familiar with. It's different though. Khan has mental powers in there also, um, and uh, you know there are drafts where Marla's alive because uh, the actress was still alive at that time. Madeline Rue, and so there, there were, there were differences. Uh, you know, Savick is in these early drafts, but goes from you know a boy to a girl, and uh, you know there, there's the you know, Spock dies earlier in some of these versions of the script. And initially, the some one of the scripts is called the Omega Directive, uh, and that version of the script, the Genesis named Omega, is a is a weapon. It's not a terraforming device. And it was actually Mike Miner who was the art director uh, on uh, on Star Trek II um, who suggested, and a, and a huge fan himself, who suggested that, look, the Federation would not develop a, a planet-killing weapon, um, you know, but they would develop a terraforming device that could be perverted by others into a weapon. And that's where, you know, so there, there there's a, there's there is this, you know, I think he's totally uh, remembering it well, that there are all these disparate versions of scripts, sometimes with little bits that work and others that have nothing that works. And he really has to uh, take uh, sort of the elements of those but create his own thing. 
Uh, and that's what he does amazingly in a very short period of time. He kind of creates a very coherent and uh, obviously a great script. With almost everything he does. Yeah. It's sort of weird how good he is at that. Yeah, I mean, he's really, I mean, if you look at it, he really does a lot of work as a script doctor and is, you know, he thinks of himself, uh, he mentions that in the book, he thinks of himself as a storyteller, not necessarily, you know, a director, of, of, you know, a writer. He tells stories, and he could tell stories in novels, you could tell stories in scripts, you could tell stories as a director. Um, and so uh, I think that's his strength, is he knows how to craft a story and and then, you know, and then to to play on genre, you know, he's good at blending genres. He did that in 7% Solution, and he does it in every Star Trek film. You know, Star Trek Four is a comedy, and Star Trek Six is a Sherlock Holmes mystery, and Star Trek Two is a, you know, Horatio Hornblower naval, you know, submarine movie. Okay, so as someone who has, you know, read the various scripts and stuff like that, now the, the credits as they appear in the movie are story by Harv Bennett and Jack B. Sowards, screenplay by Jack B. Sowards. Now, let's say you're the president of the Writers Guild, <clears throat> just just for the sake of argument. How, you know, as someone who who is familiar with with the various drafts, how would you have credited the the writing on the movie? You know, certainly there's a name missing there. I, I you know, Harv Bennett deserves a great deal of credit. There's broad strokes in in there. That's his hand from the very beginning, um, and. Uh, uh, you know, Jack B. Sowards deserves credit too. I mean, I think there's quite a, quite a bit of the the big themes that are that carry through, um, and certainly, you know, the creation of characters like Savick. I mean, there there has to be credit there. Um, but I think the first name at the top should, if that presuming that's how it works, um, she needs to be Nicholas Meyer, and it's only not there because to put it there would have complicated the process and probably delayed the film and the film could not be delayed at that time and so Nicholas Meyer kind of sacrifices the writing credit um, for uh, you know the sake of the film and getting the film done and I think that's a, a kind of a neat thing to do so am I right in thinking that you were a Star Trek fan at this point in time you know you saw this movie in, in the theater and, and whatnot oh sure yeah I was there on opening night uh, for for Rathacon. Okay, so did you know going into it that Spock was going to die? Um, you know, I yes, I think that was, uh, if I remember my mindset correctly, I didn't know, you know, it's not like today where, where we knew every plot point before we see a film, but um, I knew that, that Spock died at some point in the film. Uh, it didn't help that, you know, if you went to the bathroom before your showing, I, I clearly remember the people who went to see it in the, sh the showing before that in the bathroom talking about that. So you, you, you either knew, you know, before you showed up or when you showed up. Wasn't um, it crazy when Spock died at an hour and 42 minutes into the movie? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was literally like, you know, was like a, debate, a, a debate about whether or not he was going to be back in the next film. I mean, already that was, that was starting. I you know, that was a great inter. I mean, for me, that was the first time I had seen a, a Star Trek film on opening opening day because I didn't I had not seen the original one on opening day and you know what a wonderful experience to be there with fellow fans and to have that kind of community and then the lines were just I mean you know Star Trek 2 was the up to that time was the biggest grossing opening weekend of all time uh, it beat Empire Strikes Back it beat every film um, that had existed prior to it. it it opened with 14 million dollars it was just like an enormously huge um, hit and there were the, you know the theaters were packed mm -hmm. 
back then there weren't as many theaters and there weren't as many you know Googleplexes and you know a 50 theater uh, uh, movie houses and so it was a very fun experience with it before the film after the film um, and of course the film itself so it was almost an experience for me as opposed to just seeing the film um, now Meyer makes a big deal out of uh Spock's death and how uh, at the last minute it was decided to add the ending in in which you know there's an implication that he might come back and how he was very opposed to that idea. Uh, what? How do you guys feel about that? Enraged. Uh, enraged. It still bothers you. It doesn't still bother me. <laughs> it will never stop bothering me okay. because it's incredibly stupid. It is like it was never anything that bothered me. I think because the first time I had seen two, three, and four were in one sitting, but um, but you know after hearing you know I first heard Meyer talk about it on the commentary and you know, like listening to him, I thought like he's totally right. You know, it does cheapen the 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 tragedy. I guess of, it's not it's not a tragedy. No, the, it's a sacrifice. The, it cheapens the sacrifice. Then you know. Yeah. It bothers me, but it also, it, in a lot of ways, it breaks the metaphorical structure of the movie. The movie has a very clear point, and when you say "doesn't really matter," things work out in the end. You know, sometimes you can win the no-win scenario because of magic. Uh huh. That sucks. <laughs> and I, I'm sure that that this is the main reason why he didn't uh, return for um, Search for Spock. What if Meyer had been given free reign? What if they said, here, Nicholas Meyer, you can write and direct Star Trek Three. You can make it about whatever you want to be about. You don't have to bring back Spock. What do you think he would have done? Wow. That, you know, that's a question I don't think he's ever been asked, at least to, to, I've never heard him ask that question. So that would be a great question to ask him. But I, I certainly think if you look at his whole career, it would have been he would have introduced a different genre into it. So, you know, he, he had done the submarine adventure film. Um, there's sort of, it's sort of, you know, what is three? Three is Mission Impossible, you know, um, and, and uh, which makes sense. You know, it's a mod squad kind of thing, which, cause it's Harv Bennett. And, um, you know, he would have done something where I think it would have been taking a different kind of genre uh, and then placing it into the context of Star Trek. And I don't think he would have brought back Spock, you know, unless no, he definitely, definitely, definitely yeah. wouldn't have brought back Spock. Yeah. I think he would have made it very clear that Spock was never coming back to life. <laughs> and I, I mean, I think that the two informs what he was would, would have been interested in. And I think you know, it would be a story about Kirk and his son, and and whether or not Kirk is a complete person with Spock gone. Mm. And and I think that that's a significant question, especially considering how important Spock's role was and that sacrifice. Like, Kirk might have recognized that, you know, the no-win scenario was real, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he can function with that knowledge. Because he didn't say, oh, I suspect the no-win scenario is a consequence of a failure of imagination. He didn't say that. He said, I don't believe in the no-win scenario. So that article of faith was significantly questioned, and that article of faith was questioned with the death of his, one of his closest friends. So that's a pretty serious thing. Yeah, you're right. I think they would have had, I mean, they, what, what was the intention was Spock was going to always be dead. And yeah. that's why they introduced David and Savick, because they were to replace uh, Spock. So they would have had a much more s- 
significant role, and it would have been Kirstie Alley, I think. Uh, he would have made that work somehow. But then he did come back for, for The Voyage Home. The next movie in our series is uh, Meyer's first film, which is uh, Time After Time, and uh, there are some striking similarities between that and uh, The Voyage Home. Have you seen Time After Time, John? Sure, Definitely. They're not just striking similarities. I think they technically qualify as assault. It's almost the same movie, and I think it's it's interesting that he did choose to, uh, you know, agree to, to to do this thing again. You know, essentially. Well, I think he. I believe, if, I, if my memory is right, I believe he wanted to set this in a different place explicitly because of that. He 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 didn't want it to be San Francisco, um, but the view the view was: look, it's got to be San Francisco because that's where Starfleet headquarters is, and. You know, we want to we want to set it there, and so he was. You know, I think he wanted to put it in Paris or something like that. All right. Well, we're moving on now um, to uh, Star Trek VI: The Undiscovered Country, which was Meyer's uh, second directorial effort uh, in the Star Trek world. Well, John, when when you uh, when when you first heard as a fan that that Nicholas Meyer was returning to direct Star Trek VI. What, I mean, what was the fan reaction like to that? Well, I think, you know, that I, at least my reaction, and I, I would think that uh, quite a bit, people were very happy. And I mean, I think, people, first, of, first and foremost, people were happy there was going to be a six, um, just period, because, you know, there had been some question because of the box office performance of five and the generally bad reception that it received, some of which is unfair. You know, I, I was looking forward to seeing what I felt was going to be the conclusion of not only Star Trek, but also the conclusion of the story of two and four, which is what I felt six was and intended and intended to be that, you know, that I, I, I have the copy of the script where Valeris is Savick. That would have been amazing. It's not, the, the dialogue isn't that different to tell you the truth. Um, the, there's a, there's more animosity between Kirk and Savick though, a little more tension because they have this shared history, and I don't know if the, that would have played as sort of like Kirk having a little bit of animosity because of what happened with David. Um, it's not as as kind of like looking at Spock and giving him a little wink, and you know when Valeris says something stupid. It's it's more um, into a little bit more antagonistic between the two of them. Uh, but other than that, it's pretty much the same script. Um, and therefore, I mean, so if you put Savick in there, that genuinely would have been a surprise. I mean, that was the biggest problem with Six, was that you kind of knew that it had to be Valeris who was the bad guy. Now, uh, Meyer talks about how um, Roddenberry wasn't too pleased with some of the things that they were doing in this movie, especially with the, you know, sort of conspiracy and, and the idea that there were people inside of Starfleet who were, um, you know, involved with this uh with, with this assassination, how do you guys feel about about that? You know, um, Meyer sort of um, going in a direction which is counter to Roddenberry's vision. There had always been contention between between Roddenberry and both Harv Bennett and, and Meyer's vision of of what Star Trek was. At the same time, you know, you read interviews with with Roddenberry, and his viewpoint was he. He very much wanted a new generation of filmmakers to come along uh, and do Star Trek. And, and, and in fact, one interview that he did with Dan Madsen uh, from the Star Trek Communicator days, um, he says that when I'm gone, I hope that um, 
do whoever does Star Trek people will look at and go, oh, that Roddenberry didn't know any, didn't know how to do Star Trek. He didn't know anything. You know, he wanted it to be in the hands of other people at some point. Maybe not exactly then, but he wanted it in the hands of other people, and that and and for Star Trek to endure and to realize that it would have to change. I think he knew that. That being said, he you know he, he reading I we I have his memos of his. Of, of his objections and what he thought was good uh, for all of the Star Trek films uh, where he was, you know, from two to two, four and six. And, um, you know, the notes are very good. I mean, you know, he, he Roddenberry wasn't a nitpicker about things. Uh, you know, he, he was a big picture idea person and he was concerned about what he thought was really important, which was that heart of Star Trek. And, and I could see how he would be upset in his vision of what, those characters were to have characters who had a prejudice in essence that that Daniel Kirk has prejudice in that film. The idea of Star Trek living beyond its creator seems very fundamentally important. I mean, if you're going to create a franchise that's going to outlive you, you've got to make certain that the thing that stays central to it is the most important thing, the most relevant thing. And Star Trek's sort of depiction of, of the future is pretty important but much more important is like why you're depicting that future and star trek being a mechanism sort of a, a vehicle for conveying like critical thinking skills and and an ability to recognize um, uh, flawed reasoning in in yourselves and in the people around you that seems like a much more useful tool and in order to deal with a cultural bias a, a a cultural shift of a, a whole bunch of people coming to terms with the idea that a, a once enemy now we have to come to their aid and get over all of our tensions between them and and we have to let them get over their tensions with us you you do have to kind of head on face the whole bias and prejudice issue because otherwise you're not going to be able to address that problem but like the movie does deal directly with that problem it isn't a movie that has that in it and doesn't explore it it i mean in a sense it's an entire film about debunking that reasoning oh very much so and i think if you look at especially two and four two and six um you know the characters kirk especially has a flaw in each of those films you know yeah. to its to its hubris um mm -hmm. and he has to overcome that hubris um and really i'm not sure end, he does and, well, that's my yeah. That's what's brilliant about the film. He, yeah. he really only over. He's only humbled because he loses, right? Yeah, I mean, like ultimately, film, I mean, yeah. I think that I think yeah, that Spock I, did. Spock absorbed it. He was like, "You can't do it, so I will." So, I mean, like that's a pretty amazing moment in a movie. Just period that the character yeah, I mean, doesn't I, really it, learn. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I hear they lose. Um, you know, and and, and uh, uh, they may win the the battle per se, but they they win the war, but they lose the battle, and the battle of Spock, and it's a, that's a, that's a very important battle, and yeah. and so he he only he only kind of gets it um, at the end after Spock dies, and and he and he evolves out of the hubris and and the same hubris that drives you know Khan, and then in six it's it's the inability to change and also to forgive he, he doesn't have that he, he's he yeah. at least forgive in terms of his son and i think that that's a very human very realistic thing i don't think that's going to change in 300 years i i 
and although although I appreciate and I and I want start the Star Trek future. I mean, when you look at what happened this week, I want that Star Trek future where Earth is a paradise and we don't have these kinds of problems that we have. But I don't know as a, as a, if you're if you're going to use if the if Star Trek's going to mean something, the people who are the ones that have to change and face the kinds of things that you were just talking about have to be the heroes. And, and any final thoughts on the view from the bridge or, or uh, Meyer's career in, in Star Trek in general? Well, I think it's a great book. I mean, I think even if you're really uh, a um, fan who is, is into all the details and, and, and loves the learning about the makings of the films and has watched a lot of things, there's still a lot of new um, things in there. I learned a lot about him as a person um, and about how that, those experiences shaped his approach to Star Trek. Um, and, and in a book, it, it allows him to deal with those much, much more fully than just an interview. I actually recommend it to my students because I like the through line of, here's a guy who's obviously, you know, brilliant, uh, I think, but who didn't do very good in school, per se, you know, at least not initially. He struggled academically, he struggled to kind of get and understand school and I always like those guys. As a professor, I like those lessons because, you know, some of my students struggle. And, you know, to let them know that they're, you know, that because you struggle in a classroom doesn't mean you can't succeed in life. And um, I like that. I like those kinds of almost Star Trekian type of themes that are in the book also. Max, any final thoughts? Well, I think it's a, I think it's a fun read. Um, the... It, it it's more like a ride to me, you know. It's like hanging out with Nicholas Meyer's head for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's really hard to sort of like contextualize all of the, the, the historical pieces of data because you know I don't write notes on books while I'm reading them. You know, but if I if I were to, I imagine I could probably get a lot out of that. But I remember, you know, just enjoying you know the moment to moment of uh, his recollection. Of not so much the moment-to-moment activities, but the the creative process. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that it's uh, probably his best um, book uh, to date that I've read. Anyway, I haven't still haven't read the love story story. Yeah, but but uh, I, I did find it to be uh, quite cool and inspirational, and you know, um, educational as well, um, and sort of really a good look at uh, just the career of a of a filmmaker. Well, John. Um, I know that you've got a convention appearance coming up in in Chicago in uh, the next what month or so. Yes, at the end of, at the end of May. Yeah, at the Creation Convention. What are you going to be talking about there? Um, I got three presentations there this time. Um, one of the presentations is going to look at the because it's the 20th anniversary of um, Space Seed, and in addition to the making of of Star Trek, I have a, a both a fascination and a, an obsession with the the history of Star Trek collectibles. And so I'm going to be doing a look at the tw- at the 20 years of Deep Space Nine collectibles and tell some fun stories about uh, some of the products and memorabilia and um, uh, the history of sort of Star Trek's, a little general history of Star Trek and memorabilia, but specifically about uh, really some neat products, including like a, a chocolate a defiant that was made a few years ago for Easter by a by a Canadian company, and just have a little bit of fun. That's sort of a fun presentation. And then I've got a second presentation is about the history of the making of Space Seed. I've been my wife and I've spent the last year and a half going through all of the papers from UCLA and the Roddenberry collection there, and have found 
some amazing new uh, information about how that was made. We interviewed Joe D'Augusta. We, we now know how important, very important, the casting of Ricardo Montalban was for how that character came about. Um, and we're going to be sharing all those details. We also have some amazing behind-the-scenes pictures, uh, some of which have not been seen before, um, many of which have been restored by a great website called StarTrekHistory.com. Uh, and they're letting us show some of those. And uh, also have some pictures of deleted scenes from Space that people have not seen before. And, uh, and then from there, uh, the, the third talk is a, a, a brand new, uh, we just got a new, uh, about 800 brand new photos uh, that have never been seen before uh, about the making of Star Trek II. And uh, we're going to be, uh, my wife and I will be showing those. And they're going to have um, really great, some of them are deleted scenes. Uh, we're going to reveal what happened with the con baby. And uh, we have pictures of them filming that sequence and I, uh, some information from Nicholas Meyer about that to share. And it's going to be a really great, fun uh, presentation. Uh, and, and hopefully it'll be pictures that people just have never seen before. In fact, you know, we only have 40 minutes or so on stage, but uh, you know, we're only showing about 100 of the 800 pictures. So Yeah, yeah they sound amazing. I, I'm hoping that I can make it to the... Uh to the, the third one, but I'll have to see if work permits. But uh, and, and you're uh, on, on Twitter? Yes, uh, if people would like to get in contact with me, I'd love to hear from fellow fans. They can just get me on Twitter at jtenuto. That's just J-T-E-N-U-T-O. Alright, cool. Well, as always, uh, you can find us uh, at commentarytrackstars.com or on truck.fm, and you can follow us on Twitter at comtrackstars. Or email us at contractstars at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us, John. It was really great to talk to you. This was fun. Yeah. Thank you, guys. And we will be back next week to talk to Augie Alexi from Centuries and Sleuths Bookstore about Time After Time.